Yeah. Okay, well, you never, he was never. Uncle June and Johnny were brothers. Uncle June's brother. Episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you beats, limes, and rice chomping, dumping the body in Ricky Lake, Screedlers. This is Staff Only, the podcast studio manager. On this extremely special episode, we've got a guest that many of you probably already know, and love, as one half of the fabled Brooklyn art punk duo Japanther. I'm talking, of course, about artist, musician, and zine creator. Ian Vanek. Are you ready to eat like Lisa? But act like Bart? Ready to scuff up your huffy? Alrighty then. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 109 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. It's been a minute, Screedlers. It truly has. Is Humor in the Abject back in action? Sort of, I suppose. Uh, this is an episode, isn't it? But for transparency's sake, uh, this isn't going to be a weekly thing again anytime soon. I'll probably put out episodes from time to time when the mood strikes me, as it did here. Uh, and if you're new to Humor and the Abject, uh, scroll back through the 108 previous episodes in the archive. There are a ton of interviews. I bet you'll find some gems in there. Anyways, here's what's up. About a year ago, I was working on an article for Art in America about this trend in the mid to late 2000s where curators for major arts institutions suddenly started packing their programming full of bands. And throughout the 2000s, the Whitney Biennial alone had Gogol Bordello, Lucky Dragons, Tracing the Plastics, Gang Gang Dance, Daniel Johnston, Force Field, Jim O'Rourke. Um, the thesis of my piece was basically that the trend was the result of a cocktail of factors, uh, like genuine curatorial curiosity, subcultural opportunism, political posturing, economic convenience, and the increased access to information online. Uh, and emblematic of this curatorial trend uh, was this little Brooklyn band near and dear to my heart called Japanther. Between playing basements and warehouses, they were also in the Whitney Biennial, Performa, I think the Venice Biennale, the Time-Based Arts Festival in Portland, and countless other events at museums and galleries across the world. While I was writing the article, I emailed Japanther co-founder Ian Bannock to gather his reflections on this art band boom, and he sent me some great responses, which I got to include in the article. At the time, though, I had no idea that Ian was quietly working on a memoir of sorts about the 13 years that he spent as the drummer and vocalist in Japanther, or co-vocalist. A few weeks ago, he hit me up to tell me about that book, Puppy Dog Ice Cream, which will be coming out on Outlandish Press out of Ohio this spring. You can pre-order it now through the link in the episode description. Ian also shared a little preview of one of the chapters with me, um, and after reading it, I asked him if he'd be down to do a one-off episode of Humor in the Abject. He said yes, and that's what you're getting here today. So, here's my conversation with Ian Bannock. Michigan's cool, man. I mean, the MC5 is from that area. There's so much crazy shit from that 
humor in the abject thanks for joining me today oh thanks for having me it's great um so we're getting together here to talk about puppy dog ice cream which is your forthcoming <laughs> it's kind of like memoir of sorts about 13 years of playing and touring as a japanther with your bandmate matt riley that's right and you've probably certainly been asked this a million times in interviews before but i wonder if you'd be so kind as to humor us and kind of take us back to the pratt institute in Brooklyn at the start of the millennium, because some of the listeners to this were probably actually babies at the time. <laughs> and I just want to know if you could paint just kind of like a picture of the environment, what was going on in Brooklyn um, that long ago to kind of let us know how did Japanther come to be? What were the conditions under which it formed? Wow. Uh, New York City is a, a powerful, it's a, a power point on the earth. You know, it's where all these rivers meet. There's an archipelago there. So it's it's been a power point since what the 1300s and probably before that, but Western history we started recording there around the 1400s, right? Uh, it, it's such a powerful place, and I really I really do uh, feel attracted to it. Since uh, my first visit there was in 1986, when I was six years old, I'm currently 40 years old, and was just attracted to the art. There's art on the trains, there's art on the streets. This guy's making peanuts, and that guy over there is selling watches. And none of them really care that you're there unless you want to participate in the city. And from six years old, man, I wanted to move there. And I went there again when I was 16 in 1996, and things were going off. I got to see Ultramagnetic MCs, Cool Keith, uh, his his first group. I got to see The Makeup, which was Ian Sinonius. Mm-hmm. Um, and went to some crazy loft parties where a guy delivered me weed on his bicycle. And I'm 16 years old from uh-huh. the, from from Washington State. What the hell? This is the best place on earth. This is the best mm-hmm. place on earth. So one year later in 1997, I said, all right, well, that's it. And I moved out to Washington, D.C., where my brother lived. And then I moved to New York City that summer to attend uh, an art school that's called Pratt Institute. It's in uh, Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. It's in an old factory. I knew nothing about this art school except for my my art teacher in community college, I went to a community college instead of high school. And uh, she told me, I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. You should go there. It's pretty cool. And I thought, that's the place with the graffiti and the peanuts and <laughs> and the guy selling watches. Yes. Sure. Like, I'm I'm <laughs> on board. It's, it's there. Cool. I don't, whatever I have to do to live around that, I'll go do mm. it. So sight unseen, I go to an interview. And then I got accepted into a college because they liked what I was up to. I was making a lot of music and putting out records as a, as a, the first one we did was when I was like 14 or 15. So by that point, I already thought I, I knew what the world was about. And I'm 18 years old. I moved to New York city to, to go to school in these factory buildings as an excuse to do graffiti, as an excuse mm-hmm. to go out and paint trucks and paint water towers in New York city, which is the most exciting thing in the world to me. But it turns out I, I, lucked into a really beautiful time at this specific art college because there was so much stuff going on and it was just a, like a, a moment, like a swell of, of, of the PowerPoint and people doing mass appeal magazine. They were attending school. I met them in like the first couple weeks. Um, and I still think they're doing really interesting stuff. Just so many people, the list goes on and on. So showing up in the late nineties in New York city was really cool because there was no email we had to go to b-boy summits to meet other graffiti writers so we would go to harlem and watch people break dance in a church and then afterwards go up and try and meet people really awkwardly you know as little white kid from the west coast they weren't always super interested and that's fine but i met some amazing people and i now as a 40 year old with some hindsight to that situation realize what an amazing moment that was in new york mm-hmm. 
but I talk about this a lot in the book. At the time, it just felt like, yeah, of course I'm supposed to be here. This is the place with the peanuts and the guy that sells watches and the graffiti. This is a, where else would you be in the United States unless we go to L.A. to do the same thing or uh-huh. or to Boston and or, you know, these all those other places on the East Coast didn't interest me as much. Baltimore was always cool. But yeah, so I just you- found, found myself at this factory and felt really, really lucky to be there. Do you think that growing up in the Pacific Northwest, and it was Olympia, right? Is that where you grew up? Yeah, uh, Yakima, Washington, yeah. and then Olympia, okay. both both places. I split my time there. Yeah. Do you feel like the, I mean, I'm thinking about the, the mid to late 90s there, and all the bands are just the general ethos, or even the fucking rainforest, um, about shaping your approach to being a band, but also doing all of this interdisciplinary stuff. I, I would just say, like, without a doubt, um, and I kind of jumped to answer that before you finished the question because <laughs> it's like without a doubt, you know, we got to yeah. see um, as a teenager, we got to see tons of incredible bands that later in life, everyone said like, oh, my God, you got to see Soundgarden and you got to see all these bands in small venues. Uh, Gas Huffer, who I thought was incredibly mm-hmm. influential on me and maybe not on, on the <laughs> rock. Oh, they're incredible. And they drew comic books with every album, right? And every band member in Gas Huffer got to do some of the pages of the comic book. And one of huh. one of them was a professional cartoonist, which is why the idea came out. But other ones were like, it's just fun for me. And I like yeah. to, everyone likes to make drawings. That always just turned me on my head. Like, here's these guys. They're not like White Snake, who was on TV at the time, or like mm. Guns N' Roses, who was on my, my headphones at the time, you know? Because that was mm. what they would sell you at the store. And these guys wanted to draw a comic book together, and it's about smoking weed and jerking off and, like, just whatever they wanted it to be about. And that always just drove me, like, it it, it drove me in, in a way that, like, oh, cool. Um, you can do anything you want. You define what happens with your art. And as soon as you mix it with a marketplace is as soon as it starts to get fucked up. But that's the deal with a 14, 15-year-old. What do I care? Mm. <laughs> I don't give a shit yeah, about that. Yeah. And I, I started my band Howardian in 1994 because I had a four track that I had access to. It wasn't even mine. I didn't even buy a four track. My brother had one. He asked for it for Christmas or whatever he got it for. And I just took it over and we had so mm. much fun with it. And I just cared more about digital machines. I still care more about samplers and different stuff. And I feel like that interdisciplinary stuff was just built in from, from the get go because of seeing so much good art around us here in Olympia, there was amazing stuff going on in the Pacific Northwest to answer that part of the question. I think the water out here and, and um, that really dictates the fact that we've always had great bands from Olympia because they're inundated with rain and they're inundated with, uh, mm. the Puget Sound, much like you are out there on, on Lake Michigan. So It's funny that you mentioned the rain in the Pacific Northwest and this kind of like mood that's going on there because so much of Japanther's output felt uh, kind of like patently optimistic, just like this kind of like fuzzed out, like jolt cola chugging version of like positive hardcore, but like <laughs> poppier, you know what I mean? And the music and the aesthetic always seemed like it was looking really perpetually forward. Let's hear an example, shall we? This is Porcupine. From the 2011 Japan Thur record Beats, Limes, and Rice.
like with this book that you put together to be like reflecting back is it does it feel like you have a better vantage point to understand what you were trying to do with the music does it feel like nope we got it right the first time around is it really bittersweet i'm just kind of curious because we talked before i interviewed you for this article and you were kind of saying like yeah i'm not super interested in like nostalgia for scenes and things like that mm-hmm. so what does it mean to document it and look back um versus this kind of hyper spazoid always chugging forward always touring always doing this kind of stuff is it quieter well, it's a, it's a, that's a great question uh, and i i struggle with that that issue while doing that so it is a really good question because if you're able to identify that struggle without without knowing um it took me five years to write this book from start to to actual fruition which is happening right now and it was a real difficult task to take the same approach to making a jolt cola chugging positive outlook, which I think art should be a positive outlook. And I think there's plenty of art that dwells on the fact that as human beings, we, we oftentimes have it like a, it's a dualistic experience. There's no part of part of the human experience. That's as extreme as like a black or a white. We're having this experience that goes between, Oh man, I feel really depressed. But when I put on my song and headphones that I made, man, it brings me up to the moon and I want to go running outside. This is great. Okay. So that's a great way to make art. If you can create that persona, like we just talked about in the previous question of you're creating what you put into the world. If that persona is a tragic character that understands that, that life is dualistic, but chooses to go with the positive, that's the character I always liked reading about in the book. The one that's like, well, Mm. well, yeah, I know we're like going against all odds right now and that we're definitely going to lose. But let's let's sing a song. <laughs> why not? Why not sing a song right now? Because yeah. we're gonna pass the time anyways. Should we bite our nails or should we sing a song? And I, I really like the part about singing a song. And I tried to write a book like that. I tried to write huh. the dirty word memoir. Is is I'm becoming more comfortable with that word. Yeah, I was trying to. I was writing the question. I'm trying to think of. I'm like, I just want me to call it a memoir. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know. That's what it's. It's an odd thing, right? Because I don't think a 40 year old person should write a memoir. And I'm conscious of the fact that a 40 year old person probably should not because you don't have much living under your belt, even though you feel like, oh man, I've done so much and my back uh-huh. really hurts and stuff. Um, <clears throat> you haven't, you haven't done very much at 40 years old. So getting to a place where you're comfortable saying, oh, it's a memoir of a band called Japanther that performed for 13 sure. years from Brooklyn. And we, we affected some people's lives in a really positive way. And, and there's, there's people who we affected in a negative way. And that's, that's dualistic. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's any art that you create and, and I'm okay with that idea. And I do have hindsight now, and I'm, I'm really, really proud of the fact that this book is a, a positive outlook on that. And that there was, like I said, it took me five years. It took four and a half years to take all the shit that I wanted to say out of it <laughs> and say like, <laughs> that's cool, but leave that on the table. You know, there's no, uh-huh. there's no reason for that to be in someone else's bookshelf it can be in your brain you can even write it but take it out with the editor and make it something like that's really important that to the story is very important that to the story is just you exercising things that you feel about that experience (laughs) and let's make a more positive forward-looking jolt cola chugging book so that people can read it and move forward almost as like an operating manual and less like a a memoir or like a you know pardon pardon my my speech pattern but like a mas- masturbatorial type of situation you know and i want to i want to avoid that at all costs and make sure that people take this book and say like oh that's this is helping me and that's coming out with outlandish press out of ohio right in that's what I, I was just going to mention him and kind of transition to yeah. that he is someone that approached me list had listened to japanther and it's someone whose life had been positively affected by japanther thank goodness yeah. for many years as a teenage kid and stuff and that idea of a dualistic character that that you know Matt and I both having kind of sadness and and tragedy as one of the driving forces for wanting to make songs and to make an environment for two minutes that was like well that part's not negative everything else I see kind of makes me feel some type of way but that part makes me feel this type of way and Kyle uh, Osborne who does that was affected by us as a teenager and and someone that I met when he was fifteen or sixteen years old through Planet X Records and their mm-hmm. their festival that they did in Indiana. And we were a band that wanted to just go to Indiana and meet kids. And that wasn't very common at the time in the late 90s in New York that people thought New York was the place to be. Why would you want to go right. to Columbus, Ohio and 
uh, you know, Northport, Michigan. The architecture. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah I, I, I love history and architecture and relics. And, yeah. and that's Columbus, Ohio. Well, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> let's go look at it. <laughs> so meeting him as a young kid in the Midwest, he was just stoked. And it was one of those people that we were like, cool, nice to meet you. It's good. To, and tried to treat them like we wanted to be treated. And then just forgot about it because we had 10 other cities to go to and 10 other yeah. kids to meet. And he approached me at a Howardian show when I'm probably, what, maybe 10 years later, 15 years later in Cleveland, Ohio and said, oh, it's so cool you're here. I was riding my motorcycle by myself and going on tour with a sampler and just like having <laughs> having a really good time in the Midwest by myself. And we played at a bowling alley in Cleveland or I played at a bowling alley in Cleveland and just because I had been through such wild experiences those few days before on that same tour when I met Kyle, I was like, oh, shit. And we really had a really nice, long conversation. And he said, I want to publish your zine for you. I'd like to put out a book of your zine. And I do a 99 millimeter zine is my like graffiti magazine that I've done for many, many years. And I said, well, yeah, but I'm also working on this uh, memoir of my band, Japanther. And he said, oh, okay, that's perfect. And that was probably four years ago that he and I started this collaboration. And he's a printmaker and a really beautiful person and uh, involved in a lot of good community programs there in Cleveland. And he's now been someone that helped this this book actually come to fruition in a way that's well-designed, well-printed, edited, uh, you know, has publicity like we're doing yeah. today. So, well, it feels like somebody who kind of organically comes to it instead of just sort of, a, I don't know, someone after the fact who's like, this could be interesting to kind of attach myself to this or something. But it feels like this is somebody who experienced the band who probably, as you're sort of explaining stuff, is a good person to bounce ideas off of too. Precisely. Maybe feels more collaborative instead of just, you are the printing factory and then you feel like you're in a vacuum. Like you've got somebody putting it out to bounce it off of who gets it. Precisely. I I have never written a book. I'm, I know you're an actual writer. I'm uh, an actual just guy. Yeah, <laughs> Anyways, I'm, I've never written a book and I think it's, it's really difficult to do that. And oftentimes when you read a book by Mick Jagger, or Gene Simmons, it's really, you know, someone like you that works very hard in an office. And then Gene Simmons comes by four times and is like, take this out, put that in. Here's some pictures. The ghost writer. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. oh, I, worked, I worked really hard to be a, a, a writer uh, since starting Japanther, it's poetry that we're writing and it's optimistic lyricism. And, and we have a lot of songs that to me hit really deeply. And I, you know, when you have experiences where you, you want to put a, put a marker on one of your experiences, you can do it with a poem or you can do it with writing in a way that's so much more beautiful. And I always took a lot of solace from that, but I never contacted a publisher or told anyone I was a poet or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the first time I had to do that and working with Kyle and being in a collaborative process where you really, we had an editor and we had a publisher and we have two other writers who are very opinionated that we were also bouncing this whole thing off of. But on top of that, we have a, the, the last chapter in here, it says witnesses and there's 10 or 15 people that like members, we had a lot of auxiliary members in Japan there. Yeah. So Don Riddle is one of those people and she writes, you know, three or four pages here. Um, the guy, Mark Whites, who produced our stuff, Al Alana Heiss, who um, started PS1. Um, so all these people who had experiences closely with Japanther also wrote paragraphs in here, which I'm really cool. proud of. Like JT Leroy wrote some stuff for it. Mm -hmm. A bunch of really cool people that were attached to us also have a voice in here. And I thought that was important to, to be collaborative about this because it was a collaborative band. And just creating another product, if it says Japanther on it, it should be what you referenced before is like overwhelmingly positive, something that represents what we did with this art project rather than trying to put some type of spin on it after the fact. Yeah, so. I'll put the, the link to it pre-order in the episode description for this. And thanks for sharing a little bit of a preview with it. The part that you shared with me had this, you were recounting this, uh, I think like a basement space on North 4th in Williamsburg that... Japanther was sharing with, I think you said like TV on the radio, parts and labor battles and black dice all also played there. And yeah. And I was just thinking about like, what a jaw dropping <laughs> number of like, there, and it was more, it was more I'm than sure. that too. I, and that's just, that's just what I can remember. But so this like, uh, this, uh, it was really fun to read that. And I felt this kind of like, I remembered 
around the time when I started to, when those bands kind of started to enter the cultural imaginary, when I, when I started to hear about those bands and how exciting they were. And, and I, and I know that the tone of the book is like you said, like usually it's positive and forward looking. And I wonder though, on like a side conversation, if you were worried that the present economic conditions that are happening in places like not just New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, but all kinds of like second size cities and all kinds of like third size cities, um, that, the conditions are dictating that like those kind of spaces might not be able to happen again. Can you imagine yeah, in, I, I, in Brooklyn having that, like that amount of people who think that it makes sense to even get a drum kit? <laughs> you know what I mean? like just, I don't know. It, 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 it both made me so happy and I got sad. I got, I guess I'm just processing my own feelings about reading the part you sent me. Well, I think those kids are out there. I think they just work with like little samplers in their yeah. apartments in Bushwick. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just changed that much where a drum set became an SP 404 mm-hmm. or something like that. They're just a crappy little, the best of the worst roll in sampler. I use it. I like it, but I also have the MPC 2000. I think we live on the cusp of two generations potentially and, and black dice and those guys were just like three or four years older than us. Mm-hmm. Not that much older, but enough to be a full next generation. They went to RISD mm-hmm. and we were friends with, uh, you know, pixel tan. They were also, uh, they were recording us all the time and we we're hanging out with them, but they were just old enough where we were like, Oh, those are our older those are our elders in this yeah. in this generation. So we embrace a lot of the electronic music and wanted to have beats and samples and stuff where it was a time when all, you know, battles was the same way. And, uh, Ty, um, Ty was making really weird, uh, sample art over the top of that. Just incredible drumming. Yeah. Um, so, and we were, yeah, we definitely felt the inspiration of all that stuff. I think those kids are still there. I think it's just the hindsight isn't, you know, we, we, I'm I'm nervous the other way that some of those spaces will never be able to come back economically because either they won't be for rent or they won't be there at all because the yeah, economy is about yeah. to shift so heavily and and we just yeah. found this mo- found this moment and and we're able to ride a wave and I feel just like so blessed and lucky and this book is, is just this me saying like I feel so blessed I feel so blessed over and over again and trying to recount the stories for myself. So I can put it on my shelf later in life and say like, Hey, when I was 20 to 30, we actually got to go into basements and play for people and <laughs> think, people would come and squish together. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's my, that's my, uh, that's what I'm concerned about more. So it's not the the compulsion to create or the, the ingenuity to figure out some weird way to do it, no matter what spaces people are confined to, for but sure. just the kind of like, God damn, like they're just not being a big space that a bunch of weird kids can go into and hang out for like three bucks. Well, I bet kids got to see this next track played in a big old nasty space for about three bucks. This is Meet You Later by Japanther. Also from your album Beats, Rhymes, and Rice. Sounded like a seagull out to be a siren, but not the good kind. on your arm did she let you drive her car how did you handle it probably fucked it up and shit ice cream covers both your arms hiding all them pretty scars no one's won at the prize text me they come back inside what's that in memory it's so hard not to be there lost in a fearsome come on long and become too tremendous I didn't know what to say When she brought him to our wedding Yes, I was fucking laughing I remembered when we met Everything got wet I wasn't pissed at all In fact, I was fucking laughing I ain't the driver I'm just some random liar Who fell far from his ladder Still let's not talk it over Hey, can I meet you later? Hey, can I meet you later? 
asked too about your kind of positioning of Japanther as an art project. And you've talked a little bit about this, how it had all these interdisciplinary uh, elements to it. And I guess I'm I'm curious from like a, a little bit of a zoomed out perspective looking back on it, what now are kind of your parameters for thinking about it that way? Is it is it something formal? Like, I mean, obviously you guys are doing these, you're building instruments and homemade mics, elaborate sets, 84-hour performances, collaborations with people. Mm-hmm. Is it that kind of like formal quality to it? Or is it more of a conceptual Dada mindset, just like, hey, we said it's art, so it's art. Like, could any band, I mean, I don't know. Like, what is your position on that? Because I'm thinking about some of your contemporaries at the time, yeah, 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 as or battles, like you mm-hmm. mentioned, and things, and I'm just kind of like, they're like art bands, but they're not art. Well, yeah, sense? they went to Oberlin, <laughs> and, and a lot of these things do center around schools, right? And schools of thought, uh-huh. or actual physical yep. schools, so they're, open, the yeah, 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 are Oberlin, uh, you know, battles, he's coming from an actual, he was a rock star before doing battles. Yeah. Um, anyways, it, it, getting down into the minutia of it now, but I think that that was just a moment yeah, that, people, yeah. that people could ride. Now kind of losing my train of thought of what I was going <laughs> to say about it. But I guess it's just like, I guess I'm asking if it's, did you have to constantly be doing things formally that felt different and like art? Or was it just basically like you and Matt basically saying, well, no, this is art. Yeah. So it kind of, you just Thank you. followed your followed your bliss. Yeah. You remind <laughs> me. We Well, yeah, that. We do have the bliss was a bliss crew. We were into, we were in the, we did the bliss crew for a while where you just go to the beach and that could be art. You know, you can go to the beach and make a lot of art. We went to Fort Tilden a lot and spray painted a lot, man, for summer after summer after summer. And they took Fort Tilden away from us. You know, that's not really a place where you can go and spray paint and have a fire on the beach and get naked and, and do shit. You can't do that anymore. You could for some reason at that time in New York and we took full advantage of it. I think getting, addressing your question that we saw people like the Viennese actionists, who's this guy, Franz, Franz West. You know, I, I love history. I love art history yeah. so much. So seeing those guys, man, they were like cutting off their fingers and saying like, that's mm-hmm. art. That's art right there. And people know. And they staggered people because they knew the history of art and they knew what they were doing. They were staggering yeah. you with their words. And we were lucky enough to be put into a, a, a crew in, in Austria that's called Gelatin. Um, and we did a bunch of art with Gelatin. And the reason that we got to do a bunch of art with gelatin is because we recognize that artists are just playing with the world. The people that are hanging in Chelsea and doing their best to get a square piece of wood onto a white wall uh, in somewhere in the twenties on, you know, 25th street. Well, those people aren't necessarily making art. They're making media for a marketplace and that's good. That marketplace is cool. And sometimes cool things happen there. But true artists are playing with the world. They're 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 using the world and trying to spin it backwards, trying to spin it sideways. I want to make a painting. I want to splatter color across a piece of paper because I want to talk about, you know, this really important thing. Not I have to make a painting today, and that painting's got to mm-hmm. be in my style, so my gallery recognizes that it's worth thirty thousand dollars. Right. So some arms dealer can launder their money through. <laughs> hundred percent. It's bank. Bank of America owns the most art. Bank of America is yeah. the number one owner of art in the world. So what does that tell you? It's, it's, it's a joke. It's a marketplace yeah. and it's a commodity and getting away from commodification of the music industry was our goal in that moment of saying we're an art project. And I would fully credit, um, conversations with that guy, yeah. uh, Bjorn Copeland and Eric Copeland, who are both in the black dice, the brothers from, yeah. from the black dice. They're, yeah. they're brilliant guys. And they're, their dad was an artist and a sculptor and Bjorn was a sculptor and he performed guitar as if it was sculpting. And I was always just yeah. like, wow, this guy's pretty incredible. That's cool, man. They're just an art project. If I just mm-hmm. say that we're an art project over and over again, what weird things can we net? Because we can do any of that stuff and we're doing something similar. We want to play a cassette tape to create this very warm buzz that kind of envelops the whole room through an analog buzz of a magnet you know it's it's silver brushed onto a magnet Mm -hmm. that plays through a tape so you have this very warm hiss this thing that is ethereal because you're pulling the sound off of the tape to a head it's not a digital press play and go on a sampler and we created an environment that was an analog environment with like you talked about telephone microphones that had a degree of distortion 
and I mm-hmm. still love microphones with a degree of distortion. I'm talking through a brass weird mic today. <laughs> it looks like a pipe bomb. Yeah, it's cool. Handmade. Uh, <laughs> but that stuff right away, I was like, so right away, there's our art project. We're creating a yeah. cassette tape with, you know, and I knew to define it right away because by doing that, we got to play at the Whitney Museum. We got to play at the Venice Biennale. And I, I want to go to the Venice Biennale. I'm an art. I like art history. I'm an artist. Of course, I want to go to Venice Biennale. Yeah. I don't know any of, maybe two or three of my other friends that got to go to Venice Biennale. <laughs> just be, and we yeah. just manifested yeah. it by by playing with the world and not not trying to play to Chelsea. And that's kind of a really long winded answer, but it would just be no. To, but I think it's, <laughs> but it's smart though because framing it as this work of art, um, you got to be like Bo Jackson. I mean, you're playing two sports at the same time. Exactly, um, precisely, and. So like an art world tastemaker could see you in, you know, at Performa, let's say, mm-hmm. play that. But then a broke punk kid could go for a couple bucks and see you in a basement, mm-hmm. a warehouse. And I mean, I think in Portland alone, I saw you guys at this old warehouse club that was called Rature that was in like the Southeast Industrial. Uh, Con- I saw yeah. you at the, the International Time-Based Arts Festival, right? With like Nightshade. But then you came back and you did that at like, a different art space that was called Disjecta, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That you did for a few nights or something. And so these are like, this is the same band performing in like these radically different contexts that I don't know that anybody, uh, that just every single band could have maneuvered. And I, I, you know, conceptually think, of course they could, but perhaps it doesn't strike them um, as a possibility or it doesn't strike curators or programmers as one. And it just felt like, uh, I don't know, like I saw you guys quite a few times and each time it was really different. Um, but there was this feeling of, I guess maybe I was just, um, young and dumb and excited, but it was just, uh, I, I think I took for granted how, uh, excited other people were at it. Like just, it was vibes, you know, it was like really good vibes dancing with people at it, which is really funny because I don't, uh, especially under current conditions. Exactly. (laughs) It's kind of like, holy shit, man, just gathering and like, that seems like, uh, it seems like a very powerful, uh, I don't know, kind of, kind of practice to put into place to be relentlessly positive, even if y'all are uh, broke and hungry and tired on tour and all this shit, and you're just like, let's go out there and buzz these kids out in this fucking weird city. Well, you know? we get buzzed out by that shit too, for sure. I bet. And and what you're talking about is, I mentioned in the book many times, and again, you're good at your job because you're talking about things you don't even know that take place, <laughs> and. Fuck yeah. <laughs> but just talking about it in there that I, I say many times that a human being is most beautiful when they're dancing with complete abandon, you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm reminded of a million songs that I could reference, but I'll, I'll skip that part. Um, and we got to do that on our instruments and we said, well, we're an art project, so it doesn't actually fucking matter. Like I'll get half naked because I just don't want to get my clothes wet. Cause I have to wear these clothes for 30 more days. And then people are like, well, that guy's naked. He's in his boxer shorts and he's like not a skinny model. So uh, Uh maybe I'll like stop giving as much as shit because look at that guy. He doesn't give a care in the world. He's up there shaking his his belly and screaming about his friends that passed away in a way that's hopeful. Holy shit. What's going on? Okay, I'm going to dance. And seeing that and like you said, even with 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 today's circumstances of human beings being distant from each other. I feel so lucky to have pushed into these places. I was, I've literally suffocated because there's too many humans on top of me in a room that has not enough air. And I blacked out. And I feel like that's like one of the best moments of my life because I was blacking (laughs) out around friends and kind of coming to in the middle of my own songs and being like, Holy shit, I gotta get out of here. But those human beings were at their most beautiful ever you know and and as an artist we look for beauty we look for achieved beauty in some way shape or form it was a song or a human being or a pretty boy or a pretty girl you look for beauty and you catalog it in some way and you take inspiration from it we continued to buzz off that and buzz off that and buzz off that to the point where there's a bunch of cities that we created a groundswell of energy and i still go to these Mm -hmm. cities and say austin texas man I know some of the kids that are now the top, top BMX bike riders 
through just being like, yeah, we'll come to your house after playing a show. And you talk about different yeah. contexts. We left uh, like a weird movie theater that we played and Tim Kerr and his wife and about 10 other people were there and they were throwing firecrackers at us while we played. It was weird. And those BMX kids said, Hey, come to our house and play. You guys were crazy. You didn't care that people threw firecrackers at you and you were jumping off the walls. And Tim Kerr, if you know who Tim Kerr is, I, he's a painter. He's an American artist that he was in, uh, the big boys, like a okay. famous Austin, Texas band from the seventies. Um, I'll send you some stuff. He's one of my favorite painters. Having him watch Japan, there was like, that's why I was performing so hard at that time uh, because yeah. they're, they're legends and him and his wife are amazing punk rockers. But the fact that Chase was there and Adam was there and um, Devin was there, those kids are now winning the X Games and doing huge brands and stuff like that. Yeah. But they were like, hey, come over to our house and keep playing, play another show. And we're like, yeah, sure. And I remember it was so hot in Austin that I threw up in the middle of that show. It was like yeah. that, that hot. And I'd already played a show and we were in this kitchen with no air. And those kids are again, just like, yeah, we want to go crazy. Cause we're BMX bike riders and we have all the fucking yeah. energy in the world. And this is the first band we've ever seen that could meet that energy. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> and I vomited and got back on the drums and those guys are like, holy shit. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. You, guys, you guys are kind of like a tail whip of a band. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's a, it's a bar spin tail whip of a band. So, and I'm still good friends with those guys. And I feel so blessed and privileged to go to Austin, Texas and be like, oh man, I'd like to meet up with you. And you're, you're talking with a guy who is the top of his sport mm. because he wants to do the same thing. He's just playing with the world. He's doing an art project that involves a BMX bike, but he's taken more of a way of, okay, I'm sponsored by a major company. I'm doing this and that and the other. Whoa. I want to know about that experience because life is dualistic. It's not just this experience that I'm having. It's, it's many. And I feel blessed to have created that groundswell of energy in all those cities. How about one more ripper from Matt and Ian? How about it? This one is from their 2007 album Scuffed Up My Huffy. The tune is called, Fuck. The principle is dumb. to puppy dog ice cream um you have penny rimbaud from crass 
yeah, uh, yeah. pending this. And so it seems like Japanther takes some conceptual and ethical cues from Crass um, as sure. a kind of like famed anarcho art collective slash band. Um, how did you get connected with Penny? Uh, that's another great one. Like coming in contact with Kyle from Outlandish Press, it was super organic, like overly organic rather than, I mean, I liked Crass as a kid. I saw their artwork of Penny of a uh, G vouchers artwork and was like, wow, graphically, that's probably the best band in the game. Wow. They are yeah, anti, pretty, anti yeah, you know, like a, what the fuck? A double anti-capitalist. <laughs> yeah. Anti-capitalist. Yeah, yeah anti-government anti-establishment um anti-fascist just really had their their graphics really together and i would listen to them and yeah. be like wow the drummer's incredible the drummer's amazing then i found out the drummer was a singer and i was like well that's what i do that's all oh, wow they're great but i don't think i owned a crass record ever in my mm-hmm. life fast <laughs> fast forward to uh Fast forward to probably, I don't know when it was, 2004, maybe five. And we're on tour in Germany. And it's the same thing. The, the, the dualism of, of, yeah, we'll play art shows. We want to play art shows. If we're in Europe, of course, we're going to try and do that. And we had a gallery in Europe. But in Mainz, Germany, which is one of the oldest cities in Germany, it's where the printing press was invented. It's an amazing city, Mainz. We were asked to play a show for a magazine called Test Card Magazine. And that guy... uh Martin Bursar is now passed away, but he was an amazing German journalist. Just a quick side story about him. His friends were like, tell them about the time you introduced Courtney Love to Kurt Cobain. <laughs> and he's, oh, yes, one time I passed a note from Courtney to Kurt when she had never met him before. He's that type of journalist, like just a big deal in the game and a very humble, kind German man. He brought us over because he thought, I think Crass and Japanther should be friends. I think that should uh-huh. happen. And unbeknownst to us, I think probably he had talked to Crass about it a little bit more because he was friends with Penny and G and had been in contact with them for a long time and just thought, okay, well, here's this guy booking this tour for these guys. Hey, we'll set up a, a show in a castle in this ancient German castle with uh, Penny Rambeau from Crass and Japanther. We think they should be friends. And it was the test card magazine. I want to say like 10th anniversary or something. Got put like on that. a friend, a friend. And he blind just date. put us in. We got put on a friend blind date. Uh, exactly. <laughs> So during that time, we're backstage in this weird castle being like, what is going on, dude? We're like, we don't know. I don't know where I am today. You know, like uh, uh, pretty cl- pretty clueless dudes from New York. Just weird. Fuck it. We don't know. We're here today. Let's go write graffiti in Germany. And we're reading this book. I have the book right here, actually. Uh, yeah, here I, I have two of them here. Do you know these books? They're by, uh, where are they? falling off the shelves um, the, the unknown reality do you know these books no uh-uh. it's a fam- it's a famous book by uh this woman jane roberts i don't know if you can see this shit but my stupid it background. keeps disappearing because um, of your zoom back yeah yeah but... there you go if i go in front of it there you go um anyways it's the unknown reality and it's about a woman called jane roberts who was channeling this guy called seth and that's there's Seth's name. So they're yeah. called the Seth book, uh, the Seth books. I don't know. That might be more, uh, uh-huh. your listeners might've heard of that. We're reading these books about the unknown reality and how human beings can use units of consciousness to contact inspiration and contact sources of energy that, that aren't necessarily right here on this plane. And that's still something mm-hmm. I'm fascinated with. And it's still something I'm doing artwork in relation to the fourth dimension, fifth dimension, I'm interested in that stuff and always have been. So we're reading this book together on tour. We would often do that, read a book and kind of just discuss it, read it out loud in the car. So the other person's on board and we're talking very deeply about how you can come in contact with the spirits that are in this castle. Cause we're in this ancient, beautiful stone castle. And we're talking about units of consciousness in the Seth book and Penny Rambeau is listening to us the whole time from across the room. You know, it's like beer and orange juice and all this weird stuff in some backstage somewhere. And he's like, can I see that book? And we're like, yeah, here, check it out. He's like, yeah, man, this is fucking amazing. Holy shit. And he started talking to us for, you know, like probably 30, 40 minutes, this old English guy. And we, we don't know that he was in crass at that time. It's just like, I think this is a guy we're playing with. Cool, cool. Nice guy. And he says, uh, hey, do you think I can play with you guys tonight? 
we're like, yeah, man, that'd be cool because we're open to that shit very much in terms of it's an art project. And even if we fall flat on our face, it'll be better than us going out there and doing the same old shit and guaranteeing that yeah, we're yeah. doing something good. Yeah. He ends up during that show, like getting really into his poem. It's called Oh America. And it was during the time of George Bush and post September 11th and talking about the dream of America and how it was really falling apart. Oh, America. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. There, at those sea-washed sunset gates, stands a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is imprisoned lightning and her name, Liberty, Mother of Exile. He performed his poem, Oh America, with us playing behind him and getting very passionate about it to the point where he's biting us as we're playing, which sounds crazy. It sounds crazy, but it was also like, at the time, it was like, yeah, man, he's performing right on us as we're performing. We're performing into him. He's performing into us. And it ends up with him being in physical contact with us and biting us, which is, it worked out with me. We went to dinner. We went to ate some sushi. He said, you know, you should send me a letter. We sent him a letter. We ended uh-huh. up doing a rock opera with him. We recorded a Shakespearean. Uh, we did Midsummer's Night's Dream with him in London. We, <laughs> we've done all this crazy shit now with him and learned so much stuff. Penny Rambeau taught me that you can only do two good things in one day. And one of those should be baking bread. And I was like, oh, cool, man. You can really only like do one good thing. This interview is what I was focused on today. I should have been focused on it yesterday. Everything else I do in this day is going to be bonus round. If I get two things uh-huh. done, well, good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he taught is... me that. Yeah, so he's he's a brilliant person. I, I even G Voucher, who is who's the other half of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can't even really speak on how incredible that person is. Their their art and their their outlook on the world is incredibly focused and incredibly yeah. meticulous. Simultaneously, very mellow and very beautiful. Which is what you're intense and mellow. <laughs> like, how are you doing this? And it's that thing of duality. And she's into Tai Chi. Yeah. She's very into Tai Chi and teaches Tai Chi. And they're art school students, you know? They went to the Royal Academy in London back in the day and they met each yeah. other and they said, You're cool. No, you're cool. And it hasn't stopped. <laughs> and that's really beautiful. Yeah. And they saw something in us and they brought us to their house in London. We've stayed there many times. Um, so, yeah, Penny writing the intro to this book was very organic because he, he's like, Yeah, man, let yeah. me write about me sleeping at your house and smoking cigarettes in your house. And when you came over here, I'll write about when you slept in my house. And I feel so blessed to have someone like Penny Rambo writing the intro to my book. Uh, yeah, I can't even. That's that's where I'll leave that one. Well, speaking of Penny, and this is this is the next on my list of questions. Is uh, so we've got Penny, we've got Phil Collins, Grant Hart, <laughs> Karen Carpenter, Mickey Dolans, Levon Helm. Do you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> I just I just want to ask you about. Play, speaking playing my language. the drums and singing at the same time because it looks fucking well, hard. Karen Carpenter, man. Karen Carpenter is one of my favorites. Whew, she's yeah. incredible. Levon Helm, I mean, he left it all on the stage. That guy was, he did the Midnight Revivals up until he died. Like, yeah. he did those shows at his barn way late in life because he was doing the same thing. He was getting a vibe off of the people. Yeah. And the Grateful Dead would come by and be like, dude, can we please sit in with you? And he'd be like, well, right on. I'll be out to the barn around eleven thirty. <laughs> we can play some drums. That's you know, gonna so, take a disco uh, nap first. Yeah, Phil Collins, uh, Howardian covers <laughs> the song. Uh, like how we we do a uh, um, that's all. Uh, you know that song. Uh, the that's all. The famous Genesis song. Howardian does a version of that. That's our own version. So these really? people all spoke to me in a way that, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I'll send it to you. I'm just, I'm just like uh, always curious by it because it is such a, it's weird enough playing any instrument and being able to simultaneously like do that kind of muscle memory of syncopating something different than what you're singing, but to be doing the actual physical, <laughs> the physical nature of drumming. But it, I, I think that that whole thing it just becomes a. Um, a practice in what we we're talking about before is just it's an art project and if you can let your body be the vessel and let your body be the the brush and the canvas at the same time 
And that's what it always felt like with drumming is like, you have to forget about what your legs and arms are doing. Let them take mm -hmm. over because they will just take over eventually the way that riding a bike becomes a, like, Oh, I can just do it. It's, it's like in your reptile brain, it's something that can be yeah. done automatically. The singing is the thing and, and the pacing is very important to put in the right place and hit the right pitches. So that's where your brain spends a lot of time concentrating. My brain spends a lot of time concentrating and the drumming might suffer for that. There might be someone that can play more stuff at that time. And I always try to, from a very young age, simplify my drum kit because, yeah. uh, you know, minimalism is a very beautiful thing. And if you can create a lot out of very little, in my opinion, it's be a more valuable output than if you have 26 drums and you make 24 sounds. Well, what the hell did you bring those other two pieces for? Like they take up room in the car and room in your yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> time to set up. I, anyways, that's just my my own outlook on it. I'm very opinionated about that stuff, but simultaneously trying to remain very open minded and like, cool, man, you want to pay 20 sounds with 40 pieces? Do it. And, and I'll be there to smile and encourage you. I'll be having simultaneous thoughts in my head about how I would do it differently, <laughs> but try and keep those to myself as much as possible. Oh, man. Um, so I also read a little bit ago that um you've alluded to it a few times but hawardian is your long running yeah solo ish but also collaborative project you said you were doing that's what you were recording stuff under with a four track when you were a teenager but yeah. you've also put your energy into that lately and you're putting out you put out several records and do you have a new one coming out uh this year we do have one coming out this year 2021 will be 20 consecutive years of releasing records for me and i feel really proud of that i feel <laughs> super a year yeah i feel i feel proud of that one a year exactly so um, Japanther did 13 records in 13 years and Howardian has done 10 records in the last. So we did a few more than one a year. We did some EPs and stuff, but yeah, we're doing a record called too big to be quiet. And that's, uh, I was running in bed and this guy was nodding out. He was doing dope on the corner down in bed somewhere. And I'm running late at night. I, whenever I'm in New York city, I like to run places rather than walk or take a cab or, a, you know, it's better to run. And um, I came past this guy and he's nodding out. He like came, he snapped too real quick. And he's like, man, you're too big to be quiet. And I was already like four or five steps down. I thought he was going to say something about me being fat and running or something like that. And I'm like, right on, man. <laughs> but then I was like, too big to be quiet. I think, yeah, I think I know. What he, I get the vibe. You, I know just, what he means. you like, just you can't be. <laughs> You can't be moving around all quiet with like this, you know, with 200 like, pounds <laughs> on your frame, which I, I loved it at that moment. And Howardian has a thing where every record that we've done is five mm. words. The title is five okay. words. So we have too big to be and too big to be quiet. I was like, I counted it with my head and I was like, oh my God, you just named the next record. Thank you, sir. Perfect. Yeah. So these oh organic happenings are, are my favorite thing. I like numerology, but I, I think organic uh, art making is, is difficult and you have to wait for it. And that title came to us and we have, 10 really good songs and the band shell shag shout out to my friends um shell shag at star cleaner records they're going to put out our record and because of the current economic situation and the fact that i don't think people are going to be spending a lot of money on independent art in the next year we decided that we have to figure out a way to give this record away how do we give a record away and not just say oh it's online and it's free and shell shag is in a real struggle with um, Spotify and these companies that just aren't paying artists at all mm -hmm. for what we've done because mm -hmm. we as artists spent time in the other side where we used to sell 500 fucking copies of our record for 10 bucks. Holy shit. You could actually make art with that type of money. Yeah. That seems so simple, but that's not happening anymore very often for independent artists. So we're going to print up a CD and a nice magazine that sums up what we're doing and mail that to as many people not necessarily anonymously, but we have such a catalog of addresses between the two of us of different friends and people that we can certainly get rid of 500 records and pay for the postage and pay for the pressing. And a nice record shows up at your door and you get a letter from your friend. That's going to be our practice in 2021 as Howardian. And I think that that's kind of been in my brain, a way to rectify like, God, how do I ask for someone's $7 in 2021? I, I don't think mm -hmm. I can. I don't, I don't, mm -hmm. I think that it should go to other places at that time. Um, but I still want to be an artist and I still feel like making things. Matter of fact, I can't stop making things. I'd like to stop. I can't. We have these 10 <laughs> songs and it, Howardian is a really collaborative band. Now it started out as me and, um, when I was a teenager and is now heavily involving my friend, Justin McCoin here 
who's a really inspiring guy who kind of picked me up after I did Japanther and said, dude, you love making music. Why don't we just do Howardian? And in a really just in such a bolt and, and he's still in my life today. And he's a, a brilliant guy. He's on the school board here. He's a teacher, a music teacher here. Just nice. super inspiring guy to hang out with. And, um, my friends, Dude, you got to do a you do a record with the fucking local sixth grade band. Oh, we will for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's I, the I, move. I performed with them many times. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'll just be one of the snare drummers or like I uh, so I, I volunteered with Justin in his classroom. He, cool. he had a library job for a while and I would come and volunteer in his library um, for credits that I was doing at, at the at the Evergreen College here. But so <laughs> he and I collaborating has been an amazing thing. And then our friend Skylar Mail out in Chicago is an incredible painter and fine artist that plays guitar left handed and upside down and all weird. He's one of the most active collaborating members, our friend Mustafa out in Chicago, my friend Scott, who lives here in Olympia. So it has become a very collaborative thing in a way of, man, I love playing music with people that I love. Can mm -hmm. we can we not go and like sleep on every fucking floor and try and sell every goddamn mm -hmm. T-shirt mm -hmm. possible? Can we like leave that out of it? And most of those guys are like, dude, I got two kids, man. I can't go to California again. I can go with you to California mm -hmm. once. And we did that. We had a lot of fun, but I can't go to California with you eight, 10, 12 times. And that's, yeah. that's what it takes to be, you know, an independent group and, and changing that about what I'm doing now in Howardian it has become a really collaborative, really fun thing. And each record gets better and better and better. So we did a record last year that's called, are you a friend of Brenda? And, yeah. um, it's on, um, rad girlfriend records, which is an amazing punk label from Ohio really good punk label and we feel like we're now a part of their legacy in Dayton, Ohio, which we're really lucky to be a part of. I think they're one of the best punk rock labels going right now. He put out the vinyl for us and we sold a bunch of copies through his label and we're like, whoa, that's great. And we were able to like meet that goal, have that collaboration happen. We recorded that record down in Oakland with a, a really good producer that produces a lot of hip hop albums. So the band has a producer. But all these things come organically and and is a similar practice to Japanther and many of them are extensions of the band Japanther. Like I met most of these people on tour with Japanther in some way, shape or form. So amazing. Well, thanks so much Ian for spending oh, some time with me today. I know you've you, got Sean. plenty of stuff going yeah. on. And so the book is puppy dog ice cream. It's going to be coming out on outlandish press, but you can yeah. pre-order it presently. <laughs> I've already got mine in the queue. Well, thank you for such a, yeah, such yeah. a long discussion and, 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 and being such a good, uh, a good interview. I appreciate that. Oh, thanks, man. It's really, really fun to get to talk to you. And uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm excited that you're doing all this stuff. And it's really, uh, I think just as a document that the book is, at least what I've encountered of it so far, is teeming with a positivity that I hope feels like a document that says, here's an architecture of how this worked in a certain context. That doesn't mean that it's the same way that it's going to work now, but it gives permission, right? Mm -hmm. It says yes to people. And I think that that's like, I don't know. It feels like we could use more of that. So I, I sincerely, on an emo level, uh, really appreciate oh, it. Oh, man, thank you. And I, you hit the, the nail squarely on the head right there is that it is a permission for people to go ahead and do your reality and your truth of this. And this is, and I talk about it in the book, this is just how I saw it. And there was another member of this yeah. band and there was other people that did it. Listen to them because they'll give you permission in mm -hmm. a similar way. But I was given permission by people when I was a little kid they were so cool. The guy who ran the local record store said, yeah, you guys can play in the parking lot. You know, what? Really? So be that person that gives permission, I guess, is what I would want to say. And, yeah. and, and please read our document and, and get permission from it. I, thank you. for yeah. Thank you, Ian. Um, and to everybody out there listening, thanks as always. Uh, I guess I'll catch you the next time I go fishing. Excellent. Welcome.